Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Welcome back, guys, for the final edition of Philippians. Can you even believe it? We're here. Wow. We've accomplished something in 2022. I'm proud of all of you. Um, so, uh, first off, I should let you know that my iPad is dead, so I'm going to be doing this the most millennial way possible and maybe preach an entire sermon off of my phone. Is that awful? I promise I'm not up here, like, you know, Facebooking or something like that. <clears throat> anyway, one of those kind of days, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I was a business major in college, and uh, I really loved econ, economics as a course. Uh, I had sort of a flexible business program, and so I could sort of take different courses that I would like. And I took extra econ classes for two reasons, really. Uh, first off, the econ professors were kind of like the bad boys of the business department, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the accounting and finance people, they were like the nerds over there in the corner at the party, you know, like comparing numbers and boring stuff like that. Uh, the management people, they were all like buttoned up. They had to, you know, be presentable all the time. They had to be nice, you know, had to be good. Uh, the marketing people, they were kind of like the, they were kind of like the, uh, the jocks, you know, of the high school. Uh, they were the cool kids. They were all like attractive and everything like that. But the, uh, the econ dudes, they were like hanging out in the parking lot doing donuts after school. Like that was more their vibe, you know, like they were that kind of guy. I had one of my econ professors at my school actually. He, uh, in his free time. Now, you know, schools like they pay their professors and stuff to do research and stuff like that. So his like big outside research project was he was developing an algorithm to determine which team would be brought into March Madness brackets every year. Like, and that was his thing. And he like developed this thing and he's like, you know, like, super high percentage not who would win but like who would be put on the brackets you know based on all of these numbers and stuff like that and was like pretty good at like uh, determining it uh so that was one reason i wanted to be cool like the econ professors the second reason was because i believe and i still believe this that econ might be the purest social science that there is uh every other social science kind of tries to tell us something about humanity Econ, I think, actually hits it, right? History, that can be kind of altered and interpreted. Who can even trust that anymore? Uh, you got sociology that's like sort of like observing people, but is it really telling us what they think? Uh, psychology is like a lot of like theoretical things. Well, we think this is happening. You got Freud, you got Jung. Who knows what's actually happening there? But econ tells us what we actually think, believe, and feel. I'll give you an example. If you were to take a poll of Americans today and ask them, would you like fresh, healthy, and good-for-you food, what do you think they would say? Probably yes, right? Most Americans would say yes. And then you could also do a parallel study and see how much money is spent at McDonald's restaurants across America uh, through the year. It's a truly like it would be a staggering amount, right? And instead, what you're seeing there is like a survey would tell us one thing, and the way that we spend our money would actually tell us something differently. Psychology tells us that people most want to be loved and to be known. Econ tells us what they really want, a bigger TV, right? Like that is how we spend our money. At least maybe we're trying to find that loving and knowing from the TV. Uh, we think that reasoning and relationships are the biggest driver of our thoughts, but econ tells us that instead it is actually scarcity. Now, if you took any sort of intro to econ class, you're probably familiar with this term. It's kind of like the center of the, uh, the economic principle is that we have more wants than we actually have resources to provide for. I used to, uh, in one of my econ classes, we would start every class or at some point during the class, the teacher would shout out unlimited wants and we would shout out limited resources and we thought we were cool, right? Uh, but that's sort of the basic principle, and it's how we live our life. Our entire economic system is built on this. We have millions of things that we want, and we only have a certain amount of things that we can actually get our hands on, only a certain amount of things that are even in the world. It's the basic principle behind supply and demand, which is the basic principle behind most of economics right there. And it tells us a lot about who we are as human beings. Because if you were to ask an economics professor what the single most driving determinant of human behavior is, they would invariably answer you, scarcity. Scarcity is the one thing that causes us to live the way that we live. And with that, that then shows us what we truly think and believe and feel. More than what we say, more than how we act, more than uh, the person that we act like we are, more than who we say that we are. The things that we buy, the places that we choose to invest our money, the things that we are working towards, the things that we do with the limited resources that we have tell us who we truly are. 
Or, as the Bible says, Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus here is hitting at the exact same thing. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What you're actually giving your money and your finite resources to is something, uh, is actually a determinant of where your deepest self is, where your the heart of you is, is going to be shown and displayed and where you choose to put your treasure this, or where you put your treasure. So based on this, I have a question, and that is to you, the church, where is your heart? Where is your heart right now? I mean, don't get so sort of wrapped up in money, but even think about just sort of like your heart and the way that you're living right now and ask yourself, like, are you in a place where you're really satisfied? Are you in a place where your your heart, especially as it pertains to money, is in a place where it feels comfortable, it feels relaxed, it feels at ease? I mean, the truth is, I imagine many of us are overextended, greedy, anxious about the amount of money that we have or we don't have broke ungrateful with the things that we have stingy and just generally unsatisfied and i'm not like blaming anyone in here of being that i'm saying like these are all the feelings that pop up in myself like sometimes when i'm like thinking or dealing with money this little thing not nags at me and i think like where did that come from who is that that's not me that's not who i want to be and yet consistently i find myself drifting back towards that I think it all comes down to how we spend our money, and even more than that, living with this kind of scarcity mindset, living with this mindset that I have unlimited wants but limited resources, and I will never, never, never have enough. And it leads to this cycle that leads to wanting more and wanting more and wanting more and always believing that there's never enough, never enough, never enough, and constantly ending up unsatisfied in our lives. Paul and the Philippians in today's passage were actually living a completely different way. And they're not like superhumans and their completely different way wasn't just because they were living 2,000 years ago. No, I think they are people just like you and me that were actually finding a different and better way to live in relationship with their money that led them to a more satisfied, a more whole, and a more God-honoring life. Today we're going to see that Paul's contentment was not based on the amount of money that he had. That the Philippians actually used their money to fund life-changing work that they believed in. That the Philippians used their money in a way that brought them closer to God. And that the Philippians gave believing that they would have all of their needs met. Now, doesn't that sound better than the sort of scarcity model? Like, doesn't that sound like a more appealing way to live? To live actually feeling like God is taking care of you. To live like you have the amount of money that you need to do what you're supposed to do. To live being able to fund things that change people's lives. To live being able to uh, use your money in a way that brings you closer to God. Doesn't that sound better than the sort of scratching to get by, always trying to get more, using this money to make more money kind of rat race of life? Now today, uh, if you haven't picked up on this, we're going to talk about money. Uh, Surprise. Sorry. Uh, It's going to be awkward, I think, at parts. Be prepared for that. I don't know why, uh, even in our sort of like pro-vulnerability culture that we have right now, you know, like thanks to be to Brene Brown for bringing us to this place. But uh, we can talk about our deepest seated feelings, but we can't talk about money, right? Like, when was the last time you were just like, hey, man, how much money do you make, right? Like, is that not like immediately like your, your shoulders tighten up me just saying that, you know? It's like this closely guarded secret that we have for some reason. And I don't understand it. Even people will talk about their weight before they'll talk about their money. They're like, yeah, man, I'm trying to shave 10 pounds. And they're like, oh, okay, how was your bonus last year? And they're like, what What did you just say to me? <laughs> Please, come on. We're in polite society. No, no, we can't talk about our money. So I'm saying all that to say, hey, we're leaning into this, and uh, let's just lean into the awkwardness. Here's what's beautiful about the way that we do things here at Dwell Church. Uh, we actually preach straight through the Bible, straight through the text. So uh, there was nothing like uh, giving was down last week, and I was like, oh, look out, guys. we got to find a giving sermon. Somebody look up one of those passages about money. Stat. There's nothing like that. We're preaching straight through Philippians. And what we've happened to encounter today is the fact that the Philippians were exceptionally generous and Paul was exceptionally content. 
So I say all that to say, let's just lean into the awkwardness and kind of take some of the stigma and weirdness out of this conversation and also allow ourselves to be a little bit challenged. My last caveat before I jump in is, man, if this is your very first time that you have ever been in Dwell Church or, uh, man, heaven forbid, this is your first time being in church and you're like, I knew it. I knew they were going to talk about money. I, that's why I didn't want to go to that church because they all, all these preachers, they're just trying to get a helicopter or something like that. Um, if you have a helicopter, we can talk afterwards. But I want to let you know that uh, this is not very common for us, hence my clear and awkward uh, uncomfortability that I'm displaying here on stage. So prepare to feel uncomfortable. That's all I have to say. I know in thinking and discussing this so much this past week, uh, I think the place that we're at and the place that we've become comfortable with, particularly as Americans living in the year 2022, the place that we've become comfortable with in relationship with our money is so far off of the bullseye that I think it's going to take a lot of work to get back to where we need to be. I think going from wherever we collectively are today to where Paul and the Philippians are in this passage, it's going to be a multi-step journey. And so all of that being said, I hope that this, I hope that you will leave sort of feeling this sort of holy discontent and discomfort the same way that I have in processing this all week. So, um, in order to get where we need to go, we actually have to talk about one of the most famously quoted and uh, famously used verses in all of the New Testament. We have to talk about the athletes first. Can we throw it up on the screen, please? Philippians 4.13. I'm going to transfer over to a bigger screen because I'm not as young as I used to be. Oh, 2%. This is going to go well. Man. All right. Here we go. Here we go. So, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, uh, I got to start out by saying much love to Steph Curry, uh, but this is far and beyond the most misused and misquoted verse in the entire New Testament. You can interpret it a lot of different ways, I think, but I'm pretty sure Paul had no sort of intention of this being used to like refer to a triple-double, right? Like, I don't really think that the all things could be translated there to like winning some championship ring or something like that. Uh, and I'm very sorry to all of you athletes. Uh, I don't think that having it taped over your like eye black is really helping anybody else out either. Uh, did you guys see like at the at the Super Bowl and stuff they had like end racism on the back of their helmets? And I wonder like who's who's that helping? Who's the racist guy that's like sitting there watching the Super Bowl and he's like, well, I like the Super Bowl, but I don't like people that aren't the same color as me. And then he's like, wait, wait, what's that on Matthew Stafford's helmet? End racism? Well, gee whiz. I think I've been doing this thing wrong. I really respect Matthew Stafford, but I don't think he respects me and my racist viewpoint. No, it doesn't work. And I think the Philippians 4.13 is probably doing the same thing, except maybe when people see Steph Curry, they're like, maybe I could jump higher. And the problem really is not that we're just like taking it, you know, like and, and making it mean whatever we want to mean. I think the problem is context, honestly. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That makes sense. Sure. Maybe God could help you jump a little bit higher. Maybe God could help you do whatever you want. But I think if you put it in context, uh, it's actually going to cause more problems in understanding it that way. So let's do 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul here is talking about being brought low. He's talking about being shamed. He's talking about being hungry. He's talking about being in need. And we're out here writing it on a $200 pair of sneakers. How crazy is that, right? Like, how far have we gotten? Paul's like, yeah, 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 I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because I've been broke and he's sustained me. I've been shamed, I've been brought low. I've been in need. I've been wondering where my next meal is going to come from. This is the guy who's been shipwrecked, he's imprisoned, he's been beaten, and he's like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't think he's saying, like, man, I can make myself famous and powerful and, and wealthy and everything like that. He's, in fact, saying, like, regardless. Regardless of those things, I know that I can do all things that Christ is calling me to do. 
God here has strengthened Paul to do his work so many times that Paul now knows whatever happens, whether he happens to have a lot at the moment or a little bit at the moment, he is going to be strengthened by Christ so that he is able to do the work that Christ is calling him to do. Paul's life here, I think, becomes something sort of like one of those days when you have like... um, when you're working so hard that you're able to like work straight through lunch. Now, it doesn't happen to me very often because I love my lunch, right? Like it's a big deal to me. But have you ever like really, really got in the zone and all of a sudden the things that were like so important, you're like, oh man, I haven't gone to the bathroom in like four hours. What's going on here? Oh man, I completely worked straight through lunch because I've just been blazing right through. You get so focused on what you're doing that the material and physical needs that you have seem to just sort of like fade away into the background. This is exactly what's happening to Paul here. He's saying, hey, I figured out how to be content and you know what it has no bearing on the amount of stuff that i have how many of us could actually say that today paul's like whether i have a lot or a little whether i'm hungry or full i can be content his contentment is not at all based on his material or physical needs those take a back seat to what he's doing he does it flips uh, he flips it from the way that we think about it all right He doesn't work so that he can provide for his physical and material needs. His physical and material needs are actually provided for him to be able to do the work that he's doing. It's almost like he looks at just the things that we would call just living, you know, supplying for your basic needs. He looks at those things as if they're almost like an expense account for him, right? Now, uh, I've never worked like, you know, real serious big boy job with an expense account. I think it would be fun. But, you know, you hear about like salesmen. They go out on the road. They're like, you know, going out to dinner, buying sushi for like 50 people so they can treat this company so they'll like make the sale. And then they expense it, right? They like throw down their card. They're like, ah, I got this one. Everybody's really impressed, right? And the reason why they do that is so they can close this deal. It's all about closing the deal. So they got to treat everybody nice. They got to get them in a good mood, you know, take them out for karaoke afterwards or something. And then at the end of the night they're like all right so what are we going to do on selling these widgets right they're like all right let's like get down to brass tacks i feel like that's something that salesmen say and all of that that entire system is built around this idea that the company's like yeah we'll pay for some food you eat the food too yeah we'll pay for you to go out on the road we'll pay for you to go to the hotel we'll expense all of that because it's all about making this sale and that becomes the way now that paul is thinking about money he's like God's going to provide for it. God's going to provide the expenses for whatever he calls me to do. God's actually going to be the one who's sort of making sure that I can continue to live because what I am doing is serving God. What I am doing is serving the kingdom. What I am doing is pushing the gospel forward. I am advancing the gospel. And because of that, all of these material needs or even wants that I have are now all just sort of like back burner things because I am trying to serve the Lord. And he has always provided for me and he will always provide for me. To use the old preacherism, where God guides, God provides. You like that one? Or uh, God's will, God's bill. Have you heard that one? Do you like that? Should I do this more often? It feels good. It does feel good. I will say that. And look, as silly as it sounds, I think it's actually true. The problem is, very similar to the athlete's verse, we just misapply it. Where God wants you to go, what God wants you to do, he's actually going to provide for it. What God has a will for, what he's trying to accomplish in the world, he's actually going to give you exactly what you need to be able to do exactly what he wants you to do. The problem is, Paul here has this mindset. He's saying that 100% of my life is is for Jesus, and he is going to provide for 100% of what I need. We say 50% of my life is for Jesus, and he'll provide for 100% of what I want. And very often, that's kind of the way that we approach this whole thing. And then all of a sudden, when we feel like something is not provided for ourselves, we look at God like, what's going on? You're supposed to be giving me this. You said that you would provide. You said that you would be the one to supply all of my needs. But we enter into it kind of halfway. And I just don't think the math even works out on that. We're sort of like, Jesus, you can have this part of my life. I'll be at church on Sunday morning. I'll try and do one nice thing a week. I'll try and, like, you know, do this. And you can have some of my money, but this money is my money. And then all of a sudden we get hit with this huge, like, financial need or something like that. And we're like, God, why are you not providing for me? You're supposed to be taking care of me. 
when Paul is exactly the opposite. He's like, I don't have anything. Everything that I have is Jesus's. I don't even want to keep anything around anymore because uh, God is just going to provide exactly for what I need. I don't even have to worry about what's going to happen next because either I'm going to get a good meal and be provided for or I'm not and I'm going to go join Jesus in heaven. I mean, do you remember at the beginning of Philippians when Paul was just like, hey guys, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I love you, Philippians. Uh, uh, I, I'm, gonna, I'm here in prison and I might die and if that's going to happen, then that's great because I get to be with Jesus or I might stay because I've got more work to do and that's going to be great too because i got to do work. And that's the way that he was looking at his entire life. So of course, of course then God is like, I'm going to provide for your needs whenever you need them to do what I am calling you to do. Which begs the question, what if the reason we are so discontented and feeling scarce with our money is because we are focusing on the wrong things with our life? We are focused on the money and the things that we think it provides for us, not on the task of living a life for Jesus. Paul says here that he was good either way. He's content either way. But he also wanted to thank the Philippians because they had apparently sent him some financial support. So we see this in verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help, sent me help for my needs once and again. It's amazing to see that historically this is the way that the church has always funded and supported itself. That like from the very beginning, Paul is out here and he's saying like, hey, uh, God has called me to go to Rome. And the church at Philippi is obviously like, OK, we're going to actually help you in that. We're going to supply for your needs. We're going to send you along in that journey. This kind of path of like giving and receiving, supporting churches, supporting churches and planting other churches is the way that it has happened for the past 2000 years. The church has always existed on generosity. There's no sort of like, you know, strategic fund that's out there, some sort of secret thing. I mean, who knows what's buried under the Vatican and all that? I don't really know. I don't have any access to any of that. That's not how the church works. No, the church actually works from churches being generous, from individuals uh, at local churches who make up the church being generous to one another so that the mission of God can continue to go forward. For those of you guys who don't know, we are a church plant. Uh, we are in our third year of uh, planting dwell. I realize I say plant like that's something like a normal person says, right? Like we're a church startup, all right? So uh, we weren't like, you know, buried or anything like that in the ground. Uh, we're a church plant. We're in our third year of planting dwell church. And we actually exist, very similar to Paul here, just on the generosity of churches from all across the country who have given to support dwell church to actually be here. There are people right now, individuals who are sitting in a church just very similar to you guys. Uh, their churches are probably not movie theaters, but some of them could be, right? Uh, who give faithfully and generously to their local church, and then their local church is supporting Dwell Church to help us get started. And then uh, that sort of system continues to sort of propagate, right? Uh, we have churches all across the country right now who are giving to us so that we can continue to be a church, and we can get on our feet, and we can sort of reach self-sustainability. Currently, about 50% of our, our income as a church actually still comes from the outside. 50% of it now, by the grace of God, is coming from the inside. If you want to know more about that, I've got a lot of like uh, promos during this sermon. I'm sorry about that. If you want to learn more about that, we're having a family meeting on March 27th. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about some budget matters if you really want to get down into the weeds of all of that. But we basically survive as a church based on the same system that Paul and the Philippians were using 2,000 years ago. How strange is that? And what else is really cool is that we then get to step in and be a part of that system. So of the 50% that comes in internally, we send 10% straight back out the door to be different uh, mission organizations and different uh, people that we are supporting across the planet to share the gospel and to move the gospel forward. As an update on that, I told you I got a lot of promos. Here it comes. As an update on that, Candace and Jared, by the grace of God, have been able to go back to their mission field. If you guys remember, they were here uh, sort of stuck in Alabama for a little while, experiencing some covid related visa stuff and now uh, just last month they are actually now back across the uh, across the planet and able to be serving and pushing the gospel forward where they've been called to be 
Also, big news, a church partner that we support. So our first church plant that we at Dwell Church are able to support, the local church up in Old Town, Arvada, actually launched last weekend. Last weekend at 5 o'clock, the local church had its very first public gathering and invited the community in. And it was truly, truly, truly a great and wonderful day. They actually had a baptism right there at their very first public uh, service, which is amazing. And that is all all 100% as a result of giving from individual believers just like you. Like I said, there's no sort of like secret fund. They didn't just pray and a bunch of money fell out of heaven. No, by the generosity and kindness, by this 2,000-year-old system of churches supporting churches, the local church was able to launch. And the same thing that is happening right here today happened at the Church of Philippi. And the Church of Philippi, what they were doing is they were giving towards something they believed in. See, back then there was like no real model for any of this, right? They didn't have like a playbook like, okay, so uh, we got this guy Paul. He's going over to Rome. He's probably going to be in prison. What do we need to do? What's the formula? How much do we uh, expense towards that? No, there was nothing like that. They gave out of something that they truly believed in because Paul had been among them, had shared the gospel with them. They'd seen the gospel take root, and they wanted to see that happen in other places for other people. And so they said, Paul, we'll support you to plant a church in Thessalonica. Paul, we'll support you to plant a church in Rome while you're there. Now, I'm going to let you in on a deep expositional secret, maybe even an exegetical one, right? You should probably have to go to seminary for about 10 years to get this, all right? I have looked into the background of this passage. I have looked into the historical context. I have studied the people at Philippi and looked at the Roman and Hellenistic influences that influences them. And I have decided that they thought about money about the same way that we do, right? Money worked about the same back then as it does now. You would pay for things that you want to buy. Right. I know. Shocking. Uh, That's kind of what money was. And yet what we see here is that the church of Philippi was obviously supplying for their own needs and able to be generous for the needs of others. They were a church themselves, assumedly self-sustaining by this point and able to be supporting Paul's work all across the known world at the time. That means that individual believers, just like you and me, were giving to the church, supplying for that local church's needs, and giving so abundantly that they were supporting Paul's church planning efforts across the world. And it's crazy if you think about it. I want you to just like imagine like all the Christians that have ever existed. So all the Christians over the past 2,000 years living in such a way where they are giving generously to their local church and giving generously to work that is happening across the planet to spread the gospel They've been doing this for years. And so the, while the rest of the world is out there, sort of uh, people who are not Christians, people who are not giving, the rest of the world is out there living on 100% of their income, maybe even sometimes 110% of their income, hashtag America, right? Like uh, living on 100% of their income while the church is living on 90%, maybe even less than that, right? Like historically, churches giving uh, radically, individuals giving to the church radically out of their own budget. And yet still, like... Like, why are Christians not looked across the world? Like, why in today in history are they not like Christians? Yeah, they got to be poor. They live on 90% of their income. They're crazy, right? No, it doesn't work that way. Somehow, Christians have been able to survive and really be like, you know, fairly like average in society, I would think. And yet living on significantly less than the rest of the world. How bizarre is that? For 2,000 years, this has been the way that Christians have, uh, how the gospel has moved across the world. And that is how the church still funds itself today. In movie theaters in Denver, in grass huts in Africa, uh, to churches with big white steeples, to Zoom meetings that are happening across the planet. The church exists on generosity. And the truth is that many of us in this room are not even taking part in this entire system. The system that's been going on for 2,000 years to further the gospel across the planet and across time. And yet many of us are not taking part of this. Now, some of you guys are giving generously and abundantly. This is a weird kind of sermon because I'm talking to a bunch of different people in a bunch of in the room. Some of us are giving over and above. Some of us are not giving hardly at all. And so there's sort of this diversity. And also, I want to, again, reiterate, man, if this is your first time, we don't want anything from you. If you don't believe in Jesus, we don't want anything from you. Keep your money. Give to something you believe in. And if it's not this, then don't give to it. But there are some of us here that clearly believe in what is happening and dwell. 
and are not giving hardly at all. There's this guy I met one time in rural Mississippi. Uh, and I was like uh, at this like youth conference, and I had like a 10-second conversation with this guy. And can I tell you that that happened like probably six years ago, and he was our very first supporter of Dwell Church. He's been giving $25 once a month for the past like six years now. It's just astounding. Never asked anything in return. Never, you know, he follows our newsletter. He prays for us, all of those things. But has seen no real return on investment there. He's never darkened the doors of Dwell Church, and yet his giving and generosity is supporting what we are doing here. And it's just sort of astounding when I like actually sat back to think of it, that this was happening in the Church of Philippi. It's happening with a random guy in the middle of Mississippi, and it is happening like here in Denver. The people are giving generously, and yet there are some among us who are not even taking part in the system. There's some of us here who call Dwell our home and don't even give anything. So what I'm going to do now is, uh, Cullen, if you wouldn't mind, I have a slide with everyone's giving information. And we're going to put it right up here on the screen by name. Percentage of income, perhaps. Do we have that? Can we run the numbers on that? No, that's not what we're going to do. But I do think what we should do, did everyone's like blood pressure just rise right then? You guys take a deep breath. It's not going to happen, okay? Uh, whew. I wonder if anybody, I wonder if even like the biggest giver here, whoever that is, was just like, I wonder if even them, they were probably like, ooh, am I giving enough? That's the weird thing about this. I also read a study this past week uh, that said that uh, the best way that they've seen statistically to sort of combat gender pay inequality is to make people's salaries known. What a novel idea. All of a sudden, people are not discriminating against one another when they uh, know how much each other is making. How strange is that? Maybe we should just throw everybody's giving up on here. Because what is existing here and what is, what is sad that like decorum will not allow us to sort of like enter into such a frank conversation about this. What is sad is an inherent inequality in this. That we are all experiencing the same church, but not evenly sacrificing the same way for it. One of the inherent beauties of this system, when it works right, is that it is built on equal sacrifice, not equal giving. That what we could be is a collective group of people all giving some of our income, some of the money that God has given us to steward to be able to support what is happening here and what is happening around the planet. And it has no bearing on how much money you actually take home. Equal sacrifice, not equal giving, means there's no sort of expectation that you should hit some sort of dollar amount. But what there is is a hope and a target that we as a family might contribute to the things that we believe in. That we might actually chip in, that we might actually all be together. And sort of not knowing that information, the, the, the inherent inequality that I'm talking about here, is that there are people that you just wouldn't even believe that are giving so much to dwell that it might even be painful for them. And there are people that sort of are acting and living the exact same way that might not be giving anything. Now, look, I'm not trying to just be out here and be this, like, terrible guilt trip. I'm not just trying to sort of, like, rub anyone's nose in anything. Man, I'll be honest with you, and you can confirm with the finance team on this. I do not like looking at the numbers at all. And I cannot wait till we really get to, like, a, a staff and church size to where I don't even have to know this information. I'm very, very scared that I'll treat people differently based on how much they give, you know. Like, we'll have a VIP experience one day where, like, we'll bring in the Alamo waiters, and they'll sit up by and just this like front row, you know, top givers, you sit up here and they bring you uh, tater tots whenever you need or something like that, you know, whatever that is. And I, I, I desperately don't want to even touch any of this information. But what happens when I pull it up is I'm always just sort of blown away by the generosity of some of our people. 
some of you guys are giving so kindly and generously. There are parts of, I mean, the amount that we give to the local church is only possible by your giving. The amount that goes to support missionaries like Candace and Jared across the world is only possible by your giving. And yet, there are others of us who are not even chipping in at all. I mean, let's just assume, let's just, uh, can we get really like practical? I promise I'm going to get spiritual in just a second. Let's just get really, really practical for a second. Let's just assume that this is an organization like anything else. So let's say you have no Holy Spirit motivation, no biblical motivation. There's no real reason why you should give. Let's just run the numbers, all right? At least pay for the content. I think that's all that we have in life anymore, right? Like we've moved to this system where, you know, we're all in the metaverse now and uh, nothing is real. And so all you're really paying for is content, right? Uh, you come here every Sunday morning, you at least get like a free concert, maybe two and a half minutes of decent jokes from me. Uh, you're hanging out in a movie theater for about an hour and a half. Do you know how much that costs? I do, exactly. It's $14.40, right? Like, that's what the Alamo charges for a movie, depending on time of day. Anyway, I don't want to get into that. How crazy is it that some of us would treat the church like borrowing someone's Netflix password, right? Like, we're just going to be, like, kind of lurking on the account. Maybe we'll make our own account so we don't, you know, get the algorithm messed up. We're just going to show up. Somebody's paying for it, sure, somewhere, but who knows? Yeah, it's your ex-girlfriend from three years ago, and she's on her family's account, but you just sort of snuck in there somehow. Somebody's got to pay that bill. All right. Have you had enough rants yet? I think I'm done with the rants. All right. I just, uh, I wanted to just sort of throw it out there. Things cost money. All right, that's good. <laughs> uh, man, the phone is killing me. All right, guilt trip over. The point is the church has always and will always exist on abundant and generous giving into and out of local churches. You can either decide to be a part of that. You can decide to contribute to what's going on here and what's going on across the planet. Or you can decide not to. It's completely up to you. But what I'm saying here is that the Church of Philippi clearly felt like their needs were provided for and supplied for and that they could give abundantly and generously to those outside of even their local context. So they could give to Paul to continue to support church planning across the world. And I believe that they were more satisfied in their understanding of money than we are. But guilt being a poor motivator, why do we actually give? Why did the Philippians give? Verse 17 says this, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So Paul here is still talking about the amount of money that they have given to him. He says, Not that I seek the actual gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Another way to say this is to say, Not that I'm excited about the money, but I'm excited about the furtherance of the gospel that comes from the money, and that increases to your credit. Paul here is like, I'm not glad that you sent me $10. I am glad for what that $10 is going to be able to do. And I'm also glad that that increases to your credit. The word credit here is actually the word logos, which I found really interesting. That's a really like biblically significant word. It means the word, if you've like done like looked into the John 1 passage where it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. That's actually that same word logos. Here it is being used almost like we would use the word log. He's saying like, you know, you could put this in your log, in your ledger, uh, keep this into your account. Uh, this is something that is credited to you. Now. You guys heard my exegetical tip earlier. If money works the exact same way today that it did back then, then this should, in fact, not be a credit in their ledger, right? I don't know much. I got a C in accounting. I didn't do so great. But uh, I'm pretty sure when you take money and you send it somewhere else, that should be a negative line in your ledger. That should be a debit, not a credit, if I understand that correctly. I don't know. Maybe it's a liability, perhaps. Still don't quite understand the difference in those things. All I'm saying is Paul here says, hey, you've given to me i'm excited about what's going to be done with that gift and i'm also excited that this is a credit in your ledger paul is intentionally using businessy type language to say that they are giving something physical they are giving something material and instead they are receiving something back but they're not receiving something material they're receiving something spiritual See, what increases in their credit is not of this world. It is not uh, temporal uh, gains. It is not material wealth. What they're getting back is something spiritual. Their heavenly leisure is increasing. 
John Chrysostom, the early church father, says it perfectly. This is about like uh, year 300 or something like that. He says, the principle by which they entered their partnership was give useful gifts and receive back better spiritual gifts. There is nothing, nothing at all more profitable than this sort of buying and selling. It begins on earth, but it ends in heaven. Giving to support the work of the Lord is exchanging something physical, something temporary, something earthly for something eternal, for something spiritual, for something heavenly. This is actually what we're practicing for Lent. This is promo number seven. I'm sorry about this. This is what we're doing when we're heading into Lent. This is why we called our Lent this year less is more. Because what we are hoping for and what I'm hoping for for you and for me is that we might actually take something less of something material, something physical, something earthly, something that is here, right here, tangible, that we can see among us, something that takes up our time or our resources or whatever. We might actually see less of that, use less of that and get more of Jesus. We are taking a part in this or taking part in this exact same sort of heavenly to earthly ledger by saying, like, I am giving up some of this so that I might get more of Jesus. Or as Jesus himself would say it in uh, Matthew, chapter six, verse 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I don't want to get lost in the weeds here at all, but I think it needs to be said that there's no way, no amount of money that you can give to earn any extra favor from God. It's actually because that account is already maxed out. God loves you more than you could ever possibly understand or earn. Trying to like buy God's favor is kind of like trying to pay for a gift that you never could have afforded anyway. You know, somebody hands you a Ferrari and you're like, oh, thank you so much. Uh, here's a hundred bucks. I really appreciate it. Wouldn't that just be the most offensive thing? That's what we do when we try and buy God's favor. And I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think Paul is saying, hey, this is increasing to your heavenly leisure because you're going to show up in heaven and Peter's going to be like, all right, well, you gave this much to the church. so You get to go to the good heaven. The rest of you guys can go to the bad heaven. You didn't give very, very much. No, I don't think that that's the way that it happens. What Paul and Jesus are saying here, I think, is that the result of just transferring assets from earthly to heavenly is further investing your life into the kingdom of God. When you make that sort of uh, that transition, when you exchange that earthly thing that is there, that money that you have access to, when you exchange it for working into the kingdom of God, you are just further investing your heart, your mind, your soul into the kingdom of God. Do you realize what an act it is to yourself? Like telling, you know, you have to like teach yourself sometimes. Do you realize what it conveys to yourself when you take some money and you say, hey, I could buy something for myself or I could put this to the use of the work of the Lord. I could actually like give this to the kingdom of God. I could actually do something meaningful and life changing for this. And what you do is you lose something temporary and earthly, right? But now all of a sudden you have shifted your mindset to saying, hey, I'm making investments elsewhere. I know I could use that money. I could get interest on it. I could, he could provide me security. He could provide me things. It could provide me whatever it is that money provides. But instead, I'm saying, I'm investing in the kingdom of God. And what that does is it changes your focus. It shifts the way that you think about the things that you would call yours to where now all of a sudden you're saying like, hey, the kingdom of God is so much more important than the kingdom of me. I want to be invested in it. I don't want to be invested in what's here. Moths will come in, rust will come in, anything that I have here can be stolen. Nothing is going to last forever. This is not the world that I want to be invested in. And the question that we have to ask ourselves, if we were to like pull up our budget, if we were to pull up our balance sheet right now, which world would it say we're invested in? You know, when you invest in something, you're saying, hey, I think this company's going to make it, right? Like, I'm going to buy some stock in here because I believe that this company's going to do uh, better. They're going to, like, make a return on my investment. And you're saying, like, hey, I want to be behind this. I want to be in this. And if you were to just look at where our money is coming and going, would you say that you're betting on the kingdom of this world or you are betting on the kingdom of God? I know in my own life, sometimes I just I know I would not be happy with the way that that question works its way out in my life. Still not sold? Well, I hope you don't have lunch plans because I'm only halfway through. So here we go. Verse 18. Not really halfway through. Nobody laughed. It was uncomfortable. It was like, oh, no. 
Verse 18. This is the word. This is the part where I want to spend 12 hours, but I'm not. Uh, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Do you see what Paul just did there? Anybody? He just did something dramatic and fascinating. He just uh, drew a line straight from the Old Testament sacrificial system to the New Testament understanding of giving. You see, he's been talking about a gift, right? He's been talking about, like, thank you guys so much for sending this. You've sent me resources. Thank you so much. And then all of a sudden, instead of talking about, like, thanks, it was $32 or, you know, 17 drachma or whatever like that, he instead says, the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, under the law of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, they talk a lot about sacrifices. Uh, blood offerings would have to be given as sacrifices. People would bring their material possessions or uh, even their like animals and livestock to atone for their sins. They would very often burn the sacrifices. And then that sacrifice was said, if it was, like, if it was a good sacrifice, so if it was offered in the right way and it was the correct sacrifice, then that would be called an acceptable sacrifice and it would be pleasing to the Lord. And because they were like burning a lot of these, the fragrance was like very important, right? The sort of like conceptual way that they were working through and thinking about it was actually that these like fragrances were somehow like floating up to God or something like that. And so what Paul is doing here is he's saying like, hey, the gifts that you sent, they sort of fit that same sort of mold. They are fragrant. They are acceptable. They are a good and acceptable sacrifice that is pleasing to God. Now, it's important to note here that that system was not sufficient in and of itself, right? So uh, if you are uh, a follower of Jesus and, and you sort of like, you know, have a healthy understanding of the Bible, then you know uh, that Jesus came, died on the cross, became the once and for all sacrifice so that we no longer have to offer blood sacrifices for sin. His sin or his sacrifice was perfect. It was the last and final sacrifice so that we no longer have to offer up penance for the things that we have done wrong because Jesus has covered all of them. He has done full and complete once and for all atonement for all of our sins so that no longer do we have to offer sacrifices, right? So why in the world would Paul here in the New Testament be talking about this? Why would he even bring this up? I think, it become, I think it comes from just sort of like a, a sort of root misunderstanding a little bit of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system. Because while many of the sacrifices for the Old Testament were built around sin and atoning for that sin, and those need to be done, right? We don't need to do those anymore. We don't need to go to the temple and bring a bull and then, you know, like get into all of that business. We don't need to do that anymore. Many of them were also not necessarily for sin. In fact, of the five major types of sacrifices that you would do in the Old Testament, uh, which are, oh man, uh, burnt, grain, sin, peace, and guilt offering, three of them dealt directly with sin, and two of them, peace and grain, actually come from gratitude for God, which doesn't really have like a replacement in Jesus, right? So no longer should we do the sin sacrifices, but we should definitely still continue to show our gratitude in sacrificial giving to God, correct? No longer do we need to offer up a dead animal every time that we commit an offense against God, but we should still offer up our things to God to say, hey, God, this is for you. I am gracious or I am glad for what you have done for me. It's also interesting that in throwing out the entire Old Testament uh, t uh, sacrificial system, we've also sort of like thrown out the idea of a tithe, which is sort of wrapped up into that whole thing. A tithe actually just means a tenth. And if you look in places like Leviticus 27 and other places throughout the uh, first five books of the Old Testament, it talks a little bit more about this. And it shows uh, that the people of Israel were called to give a 10% of everything that they had, whether that was crop yield, uh, whether that was possessions or livestock, they were called to give give that to the priests and the Levites so that they might do the work of the Lord. 10% became just sort of like this target for the people of God. And I think mostly not because it's like super spiritual or anything like that. I think because it just is easy and it makes sense, right? 10%, that's like a really, really easy slice. 
And then past that, they were called also to leave the edges of their field so that they might uh, give that to the stranger and the marginalized. They were called to, like, not take as much money as they could. They were called to cancel all debts every seven years. I mean, all of this was, like, freakishly radical. And for those of you out there who are like, well, that's all Old Testament. I don't really get into the Old Testament. Forget the Old Testament. The new church, all we really know about the giving of them is that they shared everything they had. So you really, you've got to choose your options here, right? Like, if you're like, ah, I'm more of a New Testament Christian. Cool. We need to start a collective fund where all of our money is going to go into one big pot, right? Sorry. I get into this like deep theological dive, which was super interesting to me, but probably not to anyone else. All you really need to know, all that I think you really need to know is that the old system was built on sacrificing to earn a right standing with God. And the new, new system, which Paul is seeing right here, is a system that is built out of gratitude for right standing for God, with God. You see, back in the old days, you were paying your penance. You were giving a sacrifice so that you might be able to uh, be in right standing with God. And since Jesus came, you no longer have to offer that sacrifice. But now in this new system, the way that we give, the way that we think about our money, the way that we are sacrificial is by giving out of gratitude for God, giving out of thankfulness that he has made us in right standing, gratefulness that he has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we might no longer be separated from him. And now that means that we are able, we are free to give a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. As I said, uh, I think in the New Testament, there's no real explicit formula for what it's supposed to look like to give. For those of you guys who are type A, who are just like, all right, just just give me a round dollar amount here and I'll uh, shoot for that. There's, there's nothing like that. In the book of Acts, we actually see stories of everyone just sort of collectively. They're coming to know Jesus, and as they are doing it, they're bringing their worldly possessions together and piling them in a big pile and just splitting them out to people that need them. It was freaky. It was, you know, like we'd probably call it communist today. I don't really know what it is. I mean, it was just like crazy stuff. There's even this story, and this is, I think, the craziest story in all the book of Acts. This couple was like, yeah, yeah, we, we get in on this whole deal. We can give all of our stuff. We get that. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're cool. We're Christians like everybody else so they sold off this field and then they were like well what if we just gave them half of it and so they like put half in their pocket and i don't even know if it's half whatever they walk up and immediately peter's like you didn't bring it all they died right then and there right which is not the fun giving sermon you thought this was harsh like just wait till we were going through book of acts people if you hold back any of your giving you're gonna die right no the point is they lied but but it shows sort of like the expectation that somehow they wanted to be a part of these people. They sort of faked their way into it. They were like, yeah, 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 we like Jesus. They sort of faked and lied their way into it and paid very, very dearly for it. There's no real formula for this. There's no real expectation of just like, if you do this, then you'll be in sort of right standing. As I said before, you can't even earn right standing by giving. But the reason why I say that is because this is something that we actually need to invest some time and energy and thought into. And if you take away nothing else from today, know that this is a big deal. This is serious. Philippians is four chapters long, and Paul here has taken the second half of the last chapter to actually say thank you for the gift and explain how he is content and actually sort of give us a glimpse into this entire system of how the church was supporting itself so that 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years later, we might exist the exact same way today. Now, we can have thoughts or different thoughts and we can have disagreements. There are plenty of ways that the church has felt about this. There's no sort of expectation. If you've been through membership class, we don't make you sign on the dotted line that you have to give X, Y and Z or anything like that. That is not the way that we operate as a church. And I would love nothing more. Clearly, I geek out even on the minutiae of all of this. If you want to meet up this week and talk about grain offerings, that would be so swell with me. All right. I would really get into it. But if you want to talk about giving, man, please, please hit me up. I would love to do that nothing more than I would love to do than to talk about that. But if you want a target, I believe that the Old Testament tithe still sort of makes sense. 
That's sort of where we've landed as a family, that there is nothing in the New Testament that has supplanted that. And so for us, a safe and healthy target, at least to begin with, is 10 percent. 10 percent of uh, everything that we get goes right straight back out the door. Then on top of that, we also have some different missionary friends that we're trying to support and other sort of like charities and things like that. But for us, for Sarah and I, the way that we understand Scripture in this and God working with our budget is we send 10 percent right back to right here, our local church. And I feel like that is a healthy and safe target that we can see and sort of uh, understand from Scripture. Again, that is not uh, a lid. That is not like the max that you, you know, can give or whatever like that. It's crazy that the Israelites had the tithe and had to give 10% of their earnings and then also still had to find ways to help out people that were in need, had to find ways to, like, leave the edges of their field so that people might come and pick grain who didn't have anything else. I think there's still good guidelines today. And here's what I would recommend, actually. That sometime this week, now I've been throwing out a lot of recommendations lately. I don't, the end of Philippians is very sort of like, I think, applicable, and we should just sort of like sit down and think. So I hope that you're at least trying some of these, or else I'm just wasting my time up here. But what I would recommend is this week, sitting down with your budget, uh, sitting down with someone else who uh, is a part of your budget, if you're married or something like that. Um, sitting down with your budget, sitting down with your Bible, spending some time in prayer, spending in time, spending time in the Word. You can research all of these things. Uh, again, we can talk about grain offerings if you want. We can sit down and talk about this. I want you to sit down and take a look at your budget and actually open up your budget and talk to God at the same time. Have you ever done that? Are those two activities just completely and wholly separate in our lives? Another very often are in mine. I'm pulling up Mint and I'm like checking to see how much money we have. And then hours later, I'm like, maybe I'll pray. Right? Like those two things are not connected at all in our minds. And so what all, my, all I'm asking you to do this week is actually sit down, open up your budget, and actually connect and say, hey, God, is this right? Is this how you want me to spend my money? Do you want to know what the next level would be? Maybe even asking a friend or a mentor to take a look at that budget. He's saying, hey, I need somebody else to see this and see if I'm like at all on target here. Do you think the way that I'm using the resources that God has given me is really like faithful to him? Ask the hard questions. Ask whether or not you're using your money in a way that is acceptable and pleasing to God. If God and your budget have never been in the same room together, we're probably doing it wrong. And then what you do is set a goal and work for it. As I've said before, if you're not sure about Jesus, we don't want anything from you. Please, give to things that you believe in. And if you don't know if you believe in Jesus yet, man, we, we don't want your money. But if you do, I would encourage you to just set a target. If you have never given anything to the church before in your entire life, and uh, this is, it's a, it's a tough journey. It's an uphill journey. I hope that you're seeing that it ends in a good place, but man, it is, it is hard. And so what I'm saying is set, set small goals. What would 1% look like? Can you shift that? What would 1% of everything that comes in look like over the next few months? Maybe then you're increasing it to 3%. Maybe you even want to start with just a movie ticket, right? I think that works, you know, for movie church. You don't just say, hey, I can just pay for a movie ticket. I'd be paying for a movie anyway, right? Like that kind of thing. Whatever it looks like to you, taking small steps. If you're giving sporadically, every once in a while, just when you think about it, maybe move to becoming a regular giver. If you're a regular giver, giving 10%. If you're giving 10%, ask what it looked like to be even more generous in your giving. It doesn't have to be like, oh, snap, I'm wrong, and now this 110% of my income that I was trying to live off of suddenly has to generate you know, so much more money. No, instead, give yourself a little bit of grace and take small steps in the right direction. The important thing that I am arguing for here is setting a target and a goal of actually saying, God, what do you want me to be doing with this money that you've given me? All right, they're going to send out one of those long hooks if I don't stop soon. Verse 19, and my God, this is how Paul decides to conclude this little section, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul concludes with the Philippians with this hopeful prayer, saying that God, out of his abundance, out of being creator sustainer and owner of the entire universe out of his abundant riches will provide for every need that they have. 
At the end of all of this giving, as sacrificial and as radical and as crazy as it was, as much as the Philippians were taking their own money that they worked hard and they owned and sending it far away from themselves, at the end of all of that, Paul says, and you're going to be provided for. God's going to take care of you. He's going to supply every need of yours. Historically, this has been the way that the church has always survived. People have existed this way and been supplied for, been provided for, for generations. The choice comes down uh, to sort of two different ways to live, essentially. And I know this is kind of reductionist, but these are kind of, I think, the two options that are present to us. One is we can continue living with a scarcity mindset. We can say, I have unlimited needs or limited wants and limited resources. I need all the money that I have and probably a little bit more. And we know the end of that. All it takes is a PBS movie and you can figure out the end of that, right? Money's not going to buy us happiness. It leads us to more dissatisfaction and leads us to wanting more. It leads us to more greed and anxiety, trying to keep the money or get more money than we have. Or you can live giving generously, generously, radically, against sort of the pattern of this world. You can give in a way that the world would deem as foolish and crazy and be supplied by the owner, creator, and sustainer of this entire universe. I mean, the one who made every single valuable resource we even have on this planet. The things that we've semi-arbitrarily chosen to be like, hey, this makes sense, this is value. God made those. The things that he has given us, the powers, the abilities, the, the, the things that we can bring to the table so we can go out and earn money, God gave us those too. And what Paul is saying here is if you can live in a way that is giving generously out of what God has given to you, he is going to provide for you for all of those needs. Because he's the one that's ultimately in control. He's the one that ultimately owns all of this. And in this, Paul found true contentment. In this, the Philippians found joy at being able to give to Paul. And in this, generations of Christians before us have found a new and different way to think about money and things that is more satisfying than anything else this world can offer to you. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you just for uh, your word. God, I thank you that some person living in Philippi 2,000 years ago gave pocket change to be thrown into a hat, to be carried halfway across the known world at the time, to be sent to Paul in Rome so that he might be able to survive, to be able to write this letter that 2,000 years later we might be able to read it and understand it and grow closer to you through it, God. And so, God, I am asking you to take something so earthly and temporary and material as our money as the things that you have given to us to be able to use and steward here on the planet, God. I thank you uh, for giving those to us, God, and I just pray that you would show us how to use them well, uh, generously, and for your kingdom. God, let your word be our guide. Let your Holy Spirit be the only thing that convicts, God. And let us find a new way to live more satisfied, more content in you. God, we love you and we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.